so thank you everyone for uh, tuning in today to the Practical Broker podcast and video series. I really appreciate it. And the Practical Broker podcast series is about interviewing very intelligent people that are experts in their field to give us some practical advice on everyday matters that we deal with and some things that you don't realize that, uh, that you need until you do. So today on the show, we have an amazing guest, um, Anissa Lencioni, that I've known for well, going on well, longer than I think you of us would care to mention. Um, who's an expert in all things mortgages, um, especially construction. She's been in different parts of the mortgage industry on underwriting, on compliance, as a broker, um, and an exempt market dealer, right to back in the day when she started just being a straight up uh, mortgage broker. So Anissa, welcome. I, uh, I'm glad to have you on. Thank you, Chad. Thanks for doing the podcast. Oh, that's great. So if you want to uh, jump in a little bit, Anissa, about to where your background came from and how you got started in the mortgage business, because that was one thing I was looking at, but you know, I don't really know how you got started in this business. Well, uh, economic reasons brought me to the, the mortgage business. When mm. uh, I was in school and uh, all through my entire life, I've been a journalist and journalism and um, underwriting actually carry a lot of the same skill sets, but mm -hmm. it starts out with an analytical mind and uh, an inquisitive one. So when uh, I had a young family and my husband and I were trying to decide what we were going to do uh, you know, economically for the rest of our lives, we settled on the mortgage brokering because it was a way for me to use the talents that I'd cultivated in journalism and transfer them to the business world. So That's, I didn't know you started in journalism. That's I awesome. did. Yeah. Wow. You know, a little bit of a <laughs> difference. I, I have a, a very, uh, what's the word I'm looking for? A rigorous approach to vetting fact. So yeah. I, uh, I enjoy getting to the bottom of things, maybe a little too much for my professional uh, colleagues. No, I love it. And that's one of the things I always loved about you is that, you know, we go through a, a deal and when we were working on as when you were the lender and I was the broker and the deals, you know, you'd be very methodical and go through it. And I learned that and said, if I can present Anissa all the facts, you know, we can get the deal done, but don't try to hide something. <laughs> well, things, uh, things can still get by us, but what I, what I really enjoy in this day and age is the amount of information that's available to me without having to bother the broker with it. Uh, very often borrowers and brokers will find the process to be intrusive to answer questions, True. Um, which is actually germane to the topic that we're going to be getting to mm -hmm. in a little bit. But with, with the information that's publicly available and available through professional databases, I think that my job has become a lot easier in recent years. Yeah, absolutely. And, uh, and some of these clients are shocked. Like, how did you find that information? I'm like, well, <laughs> it's in this website right here. Mm -hmm. uh, well, that's great. Um, so you've, changed and evolved over the years like we all do a little bit and I guess you went from being uh, managing underwriting to joining your own kind of not your own Mick but uh, Mick is a compliance officer and talk to me a little bit about that what was that journey like in transition yeah so um, yeah I, uh, I when I used to be a broker um, I specialized in alternative credit or what we would call challenging files I, I I'm reluctant to use the word subprime but I think it does still mean something to people uh, yeah. a, a subprime transaction is simply anything that's not prime and it could be not prime for credit or income or uh, logistical or timing reasons so you know mm -hmm. divorce files um, you know people who are doing construction files people who are self-employed all fall into that bucket and I I became very good um, um, back at, and these are in pre-2008 financial crisis days at helping those transactions find a lending home. And during that time, I met 
uh, a few mortgage investment corporation managers and owners and um, started working with one directly in 2007, just before the financial crisis started. Uh, right. At that point, I decided it was better to be um, you know, in control of the decisions around the money and working for a lender versus being out there seeking money. And that did prove correct during the you know, years of 2008 to 2010, when alternative financing didn't really have the same kind of capital backing that it does today. So I, I worked for one MIC from 2007 to 2013 and really um, was chief cook and bottle washer and, and handled almost all aspects of that company's operations for several years. Uh, growing it from when I joined, I think it was around 38 million. And when I left, it was around 165 million in assets under wow. management. Now, I'm still very proud of the, the time that I spent with that company because, you know, the, the machine was well oiled and rolling and, uh, you know, very proud of the work that we did there. At, at that time, I actually um, left to join a startup mortgage investment corporation, mm -hmm. primarily because it would give me a, a different skill set than the one that I was working for. So I had the opportunity to be part of a mix from the ground up and, um, you know, form its, uh, you know, compliance regime, participate in the drafting of its offering memorandum, um, you know, really start a, a clean operation with a clean slate. And, um, you know, having worked with that MIC, uh, you know, until today, um, that mortgage investment corporation, I'm proud to say, has had zero instances of default. Now, um, you know, default can be, uh, well, not zero instances of default, but zero instances of loss related to default. Mm -hmm. So, you know, checks bounce, payments are missed. But um, for that mortgage investment corporation, um, there have been no uh, transactions that have had to go into the power of sale or default process. And I'm, I'm really very proud of that because what that means is when, you know, we, when we underwrite the deal, when, when my colleagues and I are underwriting, we're, we're choosing transactions where the borrowers are not stuck with us and we're not a lender of last resort. So uh, borrowers are able to leave. In fact, I was refreshing a statistic earlier today. Mm. And I, I think that... Um, since, in, since inception, I'd have to check this, of, of like the 183 mortgages that we funded. And I know that doesn't sound like a lot, but you know, these are hundreds oh. of thousands of dollars. Um, you know, we still have 60 of them and the rest have been able to successfully refinance or sell their properties without aggressive foreclosure actions. Now, again, it doesn't sound like a huge number, but this is a significant statistic because uh, mm -hmm. you as the broker have been able to refinance those clients elsewhere successfully and without material loss, which I think is really at the end of the day my job so we did our job properly right we exactly. the brokers bringing that yeah, into you right. so all, right that, all that research that you and i did at the beginning is what you know brought those clients through to the end so. that's amazing that's awesome although, although some people might say in the lending world you know a loss ratio is is good a little bit because that means you're actually pushing not pushing the envelope but um but lending in in that comfortable threshold Sure. So, you know, every mortgage is a calculated risk, but, you know, so far our calculations have been accurate, I think I'm going to say. Um, and as we manage a MIC, we actually have to book an allowance for loss. I'm sure that you've heard talk about IFRS 9 accounting. Mm -hmm. And when you're managing uh, an entity like a MIC in Ontario and you're um, using certain prospectus exemptions where you're right. issuing shares to retail investors, you're required to follow IFRS accounting standards. And those require us to book an allowance for loss at inception of the transaction. So one of the kind of cute things is that the, the rules require us to base our allowance upon historical loss and... We don't have any, so we have to make alternate calculations for how we, we, we actually set aside our allowance for loss on files. Right. And so, you know, before we get into to some of the neat stuff about construction we're going to do in the adjudication and all that act, um, 
you know, so I know I just posted this yesterday on, on my LinkedIn account, which was about the loss ratios across Canada and then broken down by per province. And um, on this is generic A business. Um, so it's a pretty broad statistic, but mm -hmm. it was less than 1%. And in some cases, even like down to 10 basis points. Right. It's um, really, um, I think the, the Canadian Bankers Association average, if that's what you're talking about, is 0.3% yeah. of total mortgage assets under management. But right. the, the the number that they're using is based upon mortgages that are 90 or more days in arrears. So right. what you're looking at are mortgages where the bank has exhausted all of its available resources in terms of, you know, in-house um, default management. And uh, they they've, could not re-amortize the mortgage, apply for homeowners assistance programs with the mortgage insurers, or right. make any other internal debt advances. So, so these are mortgages that are really quite distressed. Um, think about the percentage that you know is only 30 days in arrears and how great that might be in comparison. And that's unfortunately not a statistic that's publicly available. No, very true, very true. But the neat thing is that, that doesn't mean they took losses. It just means they were in arrears. So the loss ratio is probably even much smaller than, than that. Correct. And um, under IFRS rules, the, the losses are actually available in the quarterly reports for most of the banks. So um, if you have uh, nothing else to do, and, and that's very often me on a Saturday night with both kids at school now, um, you can actually read those quarterly financials and determine what their actual losses are looking like. They're required to report on it. Right. Well, I'm sure somebody's done a, an Excel sheet on that. That's for sure. <laughs> I haven't done that yet. Is that an invitation? There you go. <laughs> So in your journey being compliance officer and opening up these mix, and you know what, I think one day it just made me have a good thought about, you know, we should probably do a whole podcast on opening a mix. What's that like? What's the process? And, and there's wow. a lot of brokers that I've talked to that say, oh, I'd love to open my own mix, but they don't know where to start or what to do. Um, right. And, you know, the, the question gets asked of me. In fact, I, I had a conversation about three hours ago about that. Um, and I'll be meeting with that person to talk through the process. But you know, starting first and foremost, you have to decide how you're going to protect your investors. And that really must be the starting point. Um, you know, it, it, the, the strong foundation of, of the compliance regime that the MIC will operate under is really the, the best way to begin. And everything else will follow that compliance regime. So uh, in Ontario, and I can only really speak from my experience in Ontario, we can issue shares to the public under either a prospectus or prospectus exemptions. So a prospectus is the lengthy document that describes the features of the shares and, and, and the business of the corporation in which you're investing. So, so most mortgage investment corporations in Ontario are private corporations. I think there are maybe six or seven that are using a prospectus and mm -hmm. um, I, only one of those uh, prospectus products is not exchange traded. So you can find information about those on the, the TSX or the stock exchange and I'm not really right. gonna speak to those. I think what you're asking me about are more the, the grassroots and private mix. Right. So um, these, these entities typically start out raising capital from their friends, family and close business associates. So a mortgage mm -hmm. broker will and, and their business partners and maybe a, a realtor in town and a lawyer in town will get together and form a mix. Yeah. But the, the minute that they start selling those mixed shares to other people, um, mm -hmm. and, and we'll, we'll call those the retail investors, then they're, they're distributing, they're, they're acting in the furtherance of a trade. And, and that's where the securities regulators will come into, in, into, the, into the scope of work to form mm -hmm. your mix. So um, understanding, you know, if you intend to approach retail investors, and if so, you know, are you going to go for accredited investors only, or will you go for uh, investors who have a lower number of, uh, of net financial assets? or a lower net worth, um, that's really what drives your, your MIC formation because, um, frankly, a corporation that says it's a mortgage investment corporation can exist without a compliance regime. It's just when you cross that threshold and start to attract investment capital that you have a different set of rules that you're playing by. Um, I, I'm so not sure. Really, 
if they stayed really small and just like you said, friends and family, then they wouldn't need to go through that level. But you know, you and I both we've talked about many times about making sure your compliance number one is that's that's the, what you got to start with. Right, yeah. because it's all about representations. So when when you're forming an investment vehicle, what you're telling the shareholders that you're doing is what you have to prove that you've done. And right. so um, you know, if you say that you're lending in. Uh, you know, Carlton Place and you won't go over 50%, but then you land in Elmont and you do 65, then you've just breached your promise to your investors. Right. So, you know, that, that, that investor base and, and what that investor base will look like is how you form your corporation. You're forming your corporation around your investors and what you're telling them. For sure. Absolutely. So after this, you know, this journey that you've been doing, going through mix and compliance office and starting this, this new baby mix from scratch and getting it up to, you know, a very good size. Um, mm -hmm. and, creating all that thing that, you know, I was surprised to see, like many of us that know you well, you said, you know, I've, I've made that challenge. I've climbed that mountain. Now I want to climb a new mountain and then enter in at the same time, the new um, construction lean act that was brought in place in Ontario. And Definitely. I, I really feel like this is the next problem. Um, I, I think that I'm at the, the point in my life where I want to, you know, keep learning, but also share mm -hmm. what I've learned. And um, because I have specialized uh, in this mortgage investment space, I tried to figure out what's the next problem that threatens all mortgage investment corporations. And to me in Ontario, it seems that the construction lean act changes that came into force last year are those changes that are the canary in the coal mine for mortgage lending across the province, but specifically for mortgage investment corporations, because so many mix are the ones that are funding construction that the banks do not finance. So right. I think you can probably speak better to the kind of construction that the banks can finance and where that line is drawn between bank yeah. and MIC. Yeah, the, you know, as you know, the banks don't want to fund a lot of construction, especially the smaller construction, you know, they're, they're fine to fund the Mintos of the world and the, you know, the really large builders, but the small guys, unless they're really, really well capitalized, they don't want to the banks don't want to fund them. So as brokers, we ended up placing with different mix, as you mentioned, or private funds. And uh, and the lenders are not necessarily experts at construction, even though they say they are. They're, you know, I've talked to some people with the new construction lean act, um, and they're like, what are you talking about? I'm like, how are you guys not aware of this? Right. So um, basically in 2016, I believe, the province started a consultation to re rework the Construction Lean Act with an eye toward prompt payment legislation. So what they wanted was to respond to the construction industry's demands for a regime that would help to ensure that subcontractors, suppliers, and tradespeople got paid promptly where there was a dispute between the general contractor and the property owner. So the, the general contractor being the person who's doing the, the construction and the property owner being either the, the tearing on builder or the you know, retail consumer who's building the home. Um, so if, uh, if the general contractor was to deliver something to the retail homeowner or to the homeowner, um, but there was a dispute about how that work was being done or the quality of work or the timelines of the work or the cost of the work, what would happen is the homeowner would withhold, or the property owner would withhold payment and then the contractor would end up in dispute with that, that homeowner. But behind the contractor, there's a whole lineup of tradespeople and right. suppliers who would not be getting paid because that money was held up in that initial dispute. So mm -hmm. you know, if the electrician's work was in dispute, but the plumber's work was not, the plumber would still not be getting paid. So this, this renovation or overhaul of the Construction Lean Act was intended to um, you know, scrutinize that process and try and figure out a way that you know, the people who were not at fault could get their monies 
paid so that you know they could continue to pay their suppliers and subcontractors contractors and tradespeople and, and right. stay in business and stay afloat. I, another another outcome of this was that it um, it intends for the dispute process to be faster and to alleviate some of the congestion in the courts so that construction liens don't end up um, you know kind of clogging the courthouse dockets and the small claims dockets. So it's meant to kind right. of remove some of those simpler disputes from the, the formal court process. And, yeah. and finally, I think one of the unintended consequences is um, correlated to, um, you know, kind of forcing the construction industry to professionalize so that uh, tradespeople who might have worked on a handshake in previous years or on the cash basis or under the table um, are now being required to present invoices every month. Um, so that's really kind of creating more paperwork, but it's, it's formalizing the process. So there will be uh, HST implications like throughout the process. Absolutely. And there's a neat thing on that. I don't know if, if you want to get into it, but I was really surprised when I went, read it and went through it, is the need for trust accounts for generals. Uh, and a lot of them are not even aware that, you know, each project needs its own trust account. Right. Well, but it's a deemed trust account. So mm -hmm. this, this comes, you know, <laughs> you're right. And, and that is a complication. Um, I, I think just, just as much as I said before that, um, you know, there's a lot of information out there that I can find. There are a lot of programs out there that didn't exist 10 years ago um, that are affordable and reasonable and would allow these folks to use their cell phones or their smartphones to, right. to, to process their accounting. So it's a deemed trust, right? So it doesn't actually require a trust account. It's a deemed trust. Mm, okay, I thought it was actually a real trust account that they had to set up. In some cases, so it depends upon the scope of the build. Um, okay. But you know, it, the the funds are deemed trust funds in the hands that in which you receive them. So you have to be able to account for it. It doesn't yeah. require the actual implementation of a, a formal trust account with trustees. Oh. Neat. All right, that's a, that's a good that's a good note. So so part of that part of that issue, the whole act, was this need for an adjudicator, right? right. And, um, and then that's something that piqued your interest. Yeah, very much so. So the the um, the law uh, set up these uh, new people called construction lien adjudicators who were folks who had 10 years of experience in construction in certain ways. Uh, employers, accountants, project managers, um, quantity surveyors, estimators, engineers, and architects, I think, were the, the basic list of people who they expected to have 10 years of experience to qualify to become an adjudicator. And then uh, there's a, a training process that you have to go through to become approved, and there's a body that approves your application. So right now there are 39 people who have been approved as adjudicators in Ontario. I'm not sure yet because uh, adjudication only came into force on October 1st and the training really only commenced in November. Um, so this is a very, very new process and it's a very, very new body. I'm not even sure that a single adjudication has been put through the system yet because when I took the training in November, there had not yet been act an actual submission of a case. Now that could have changed. Right. I'm sure, I'm sure, well, there's a lot of liens and disputes going on right all the time in the construction industry. So. <laughs> Um, I expect right. there to be some. But no one's forcing this, right? So adjudication is not a required process. So adjudication is an option. Um, it's, so it's, it's an alternative dispute resolution system. That's, that's one of the options that people have. But again, the intent is to speed it up. So um, one of the advantages of the adjudication process is that it's very inexpensive in comparison yeah. to using a lawyer. And it's also faster than going through the courts. So you can, you can register a lien um, very, very, fairly quickly, but you can't really enforce that lien unless you go to the court. And that could take quite some time. When right. you use the adjudication process, you are intended to have a decision within 30 days of your application. That's so awesome. Then, then the construction can still go through and the whole program's not 
Yeah, correct. Well, um, adjudication is meant to be an interim process. So it's not meant to decide on a project that's completed. It's meant to unlock the, the, the project while it's going on so that, again, the project can continue and people can get substantially completed and the tradespeople can get paid. So this right. is meant to be during the construction process and not after a project is deemed to be complete. That's amazing. So one of the questions that I had um, was if somebody wants to go through this process, they're they're having a conflict one way or the other, whether they're with their suppliers or their GC or whichever side of the, the fence you're on, and they want to do an adjudication, how do they find these adjudicators? What's the process? Right. So um, I have the website pulled up here. It's odacc.ca. Okay. And uh, there's information on that site. So it's ODAC, ODAC.ca. And there's information there for claimants and respondents. Now, uh, you, you can be a claimant or a respondent depending upon, you know, who's who's got the dispute. So I could be a homeowner right. and be a claimant, but I could also be a homeowner and be a respondent. Mm -hmm. So uh, the, the claimant is the person either who decides that they don't want to pay or the person mm -hmm. who disputes the non-payment. So it's, it's whichever person is kind of dissatisfied with that notice of non-payment that commences okay. the adjudication. Perfect. And is this something you think will help like the smaller, uh, you know, that you brought up a homeowner, you know, there was a case um, a little while ago, one of my, I guess one of my clients kind of indirectly, um, you know, they built a deck, it was a $40,000 deck, um, it wasn't done properly, they didn't want to pay um, the contractor for doing that. Is that something as an example that they could go through this process? Absolutely. The the minimum or the there there are kind of tiers of okay. value of adjudications and the, the there is a, a tier of adjudication for disputes that are eight thousand dollars or less. So okay. yes, it is intended for any improvement to a property. And an improvement to the property is not uh, repair and maintenance. It's anything okay. that maintains or improves the value. So that could be a deck. It could be a new bathroom. It could be a new house. It could be a thirty unit apartment building. But it's okay. an improvement. And that includes um, improvements to the ground to permit the house to be erected. So that's groundwork as well. Okay. That's a, so this is a great option when, you know, I, a lot of times we'll have a contractor that will end up threatening a homeowner or something, especially when they're not sophisticated and say, if you don't pay, I'm going to put a lien on your house. And then their answer can be, okay, great. We're going to go to adjudication. Yeah. Exactly. So that's exactly what it's intended to do is, uh, but again, not when the work is done. So it's meant to be a dispute as soon as the dispute is discovered or as soon as the deficiency is discovered. And I can't stress that enough. Okay. Um, this is not meant to be, you know, entered into after the work is completed or after the contract is performed. So for, for that homeowner, you know, they, they need to be, you know, bringing their dissatisfaction to the contractor's attention immediately. So if there's a, a daily tick list or a weekly invoice or a monthly invoice, um, you know that that dispute needs to be raised before that work is completed. Okay, so what happens if quite often in the smaller projects, right? Mm -hmm. We all think, especially if you're not in this every day, um, you think, oh, that contractor's going to fix this thing or that thing or, or whatever, and then they get to the end of it and he says, "Great, here's my bill," and you're like, "Whoa, whoa, whoa." I'm not happy you didn't do A, B, C, D, E. Well, that's exactly right. So uh, this is a case where you have to pay yourself first, right? So you yeah. must, must be on top of the paperwork. And it comes back to my earlier comment about the handshake deal. As much as maybe you've worked with somebody in the past or your neighbors mm -hmm. have highly recommended them, um, first and foremost, the piece of evidence that's going to be reviewed by the adjudicator is the contract. And if the contract is not detailed, uh, if the contract is not specific, if the contract is not honored, then the adjudicator will only have that contract 
you know, that incomplete or that insufficient contract to make their decision on. So the, the more um, accurate your contract can be, and that includes change orders, right? So, so your, your contract and your change orders both have to be documented and available to the adjudicator. So really handshakes aren't enough, text messages aren't enough. Um, you know, we must, as, a, as, a, as, a, as an industry, advise our clients to be aware of that. So a good example, I mean, it's kind of a silly one, but if your contract says build a bathroom for $5,000 and there's a working sink and a toilet, it's that not might count. That's exactly right. So that contract is not detailed enough. Mm -hmm. Right. So you'd have to go into, you know, exactly what kind of tiles and what you want it to look like. and. Absolutely. Um, as a lender, I declined a transaction yesterday because, you know, a year ago, um, I, I probably would have been fine with this, but this year I can't because of this new construction lien act, where the uh, the contractor presented a quote and both parties signed it, but it was handwritten. And in the very bottom in the notes section, it said, can go up or down based upon selections. So right. I cannot rely upon that document under the new construction lien act because it has that variability to it with the yeah. homeowner's selections during the project. Right. So how do you work on that where it's in a joint venture, not certain not a joint venture, but a, um, a process where you typically see a general contractor. So you have an allowance for a kitchen, you have a, uh, you know, those allowances for that, that kind of situation. How does that, how does that work? Well, um, I would suggest that both parties insist upon uh, documentation of decisions. So, right. you know, if the contractor has a website or a portal or email or anything, just to, you know, send the selection to the homeowner if they're choosing countertop or tile and they have the homeowner respond in writing and then update that quote or update that contract to reflect the change. So it's paperwork for sure. Yeah, just paperwork for sure. And now there's one thing I noticed in there about paying if you're the general, so I, I realize this for, for a lot of again, homeowners, small builders, if you're hiring a, a tradesperson, let's say that you want to come into their siding, and then that tradesperson is hiring a sub underneath them. So like a sub is getting sub. Uh, there's some very specific provisions in that that I think most you know homeowners and small builders aren't aware of. Correct. But I think that passes through to the lenders. I think most lenders aren't aware of this either. And that's, you know, what I've been trying to talk up as we are, you know, talking to our industry peers. So, mm -hmm. um, you know, every month, unless the contract stipulates otherwise, the contractor must deliver an invoice to the, uh, the contractor or the supplier or the subcontractor or the tradesperson, et cetera, et cetera, must invoice the person who's paying them at least monthly. Right. And then that the person who's receiving the invoice has 21 days in which they're going to dispute the payment. So mm -hmm. every month, everyone is invoicing up and every month, everyone is paying down unless right. there's a dispute. But the dispute can only be for the amounts that are insufficient. So if, if only 30% of the invoice is insufficient, then 70% is paid back down. And then that contractor pays that 70% out to the people who have earned it. Right. And that's where that trust comes into play. So that 70% mm -hmm. is in trust for all of their suppliers, subcontractors, and tradespeople. That's not their, they're not right. paying themselves first. So that those monies are in trust for everyone else to whom they owe money. And it has to be paid down. I think that's a good comment. Uh, that was my reading too, is, you know, the, the subcontractor can't pay themselves first. Mm -hmm. um, and I think that's where a lot of the small business and the small tradespeople are, you know, like a cot. It's that they're intermingling, intermingling operational funds with project funds. Yeah. Um, so they're going to have to be really careful about that. That's exactly right. And that's where the confusion, I think, stands for the description of what is the trust obligation under the act. And, and that's yeah. what we talked about before. Yeah, the advice that I have, and obviously I'm not a lawyer or an accountant, but uh, on a kind of a street level, I said to the builders, I'm like, at least make two accounts. You know, have your operational account and then have the project accounts. So at least you have you know, that separation. 
Definitely, definitely. Or, you know, again, invest in a, a new software platform, right? Don't mm -hmm. make it about a, a paper bag of receipts, right? You know, yeah. there are many, many, many programs that can be installed on your smartphone that can help you deal with these allowances. And Absolutely. actually send back invoices and contract change orders in real time as you're scanning them in front of the clients. So I, I think the more, um, you know, the, the contractors invest in learning to do this right mm -hmm. from the beginning, I think that the, the better the experience will be for all parties. For sure. Absolutely. Now, I know you're not promoting one specific software or another, but is there things you've seen work well for the small builders and renovators and, and those people? Wow. I've heard um, you mentioned software a few times. You know, there, there's one that I like that the BDC also promotes, and it's called Wave. And I believe it's fairly inexpensive and low cost, but what it also does is it allows for invoicing directly from the app. And it integrates in your um, PayPal account and it can actually import your bank account transactions as well. So I think that for the average person, this app, I think, will, will help. And, and what is it called? Wave. Oh, Wave. W-A-V-E. Um, it's Wave. Yeah. Yeah. And the, the BDC also um, recommends that one. Oh, that's great. Yeah, the, um, yeah I've seen um, other contractor accounts as well. You know, I, I, I just ended up doing QuickBooks Online for me and... Um, and there's a contractor version of that too, which I've never used it for a contractor, but. Definitely. Um, I love QuickBooks Online, but again, I think Wave is free. So that's why I was suggesting that yeah. that might be the starting point. Um, yeah. If you are looking at an app or a software tool, just understand, you know, you're obligated to back up your data. So right. you know, eventually you're going to have to learn to uh, download that if that software company ever decides that they're going to start yeah. requiring you to pay. Yeah, and you know, if you download it, save it in multiple locations, even print out a hard copy once a year. Definitely. I don't think we're talking about that today, but yeah. yeah. <laughs> so. That's great. Um, so that's a big change in the industry. Um, you know, as we mentioned, I don't think a lot of builders and clients and definitely the retail consumers are not aware of this. Um, I think you're right. I think there's there's been a lot of, um, I, I've attended a lot of seminars, but I've been following this for four years. Um, right. I, it's been something that I've seen coming. And what I worry about as well are the lenders. So uh, you know, and, and you can confirm this, that most lenders will work on what's called a progress advance basis. So right. they're relying upon an appraiser's progress report to determine yeah. what they're kind of unlocking from their approved mortgage to advance to that property owner so that the construction can continue. Uh, in the Construction Lien Act, the lender possesses no obligations. So the, the lender does not have any sort of monthly invoicing obligation. So if, you're, if your lender does not expect a, a draw request or you haven't done your progress report, then you don't get any funds and you can't meet your contractual obligations. Right. So that's something for homeowners or sorry, for property owners to bear in mind when they're, when they're in the middle of a project is if they know that monthly invoice is coming from their general or from the suppliers, that they should be requesting a progress report at least monthly, which can add to the legal bills if the lender that you're using advances those progress draws to the lawyer. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. Well, the whole, you know, every single progress draw, and for our listeners that, that are here and not familiar with it, um, in a construction project, especially ground up, if you're building a house or an apartment building or whatever, um, it goes in stages, you know, sort of every, every stage we send out an inspector, it might be the appraiser, it might be a quantum surveyor, um, and they go through and they check, okay, is there a foundation there? And, and yes, and that creates this much of a percentage um, of the overall project completion. And they create this report that goes back to kind of the part of what he's talking about. But that cost some money to send the person out, um, get the pictures, the lender gets involved, then it goes to the back to that lender and then to the lawyer. Um, you know, it can be $500 to $1,000 a draw. But you might also miss on. the 28-day deadline. What's that? The 28-day the deadline from invoice to payment, right? So oh. if, if, uh, if your draw isn't ordered in a timely fashion, then you might miss the payment deadline and end up in adjudication unwillingly. Absolutely. So it's really important for the, for the people listening is that 
and your lender structure with them say, okay, I want to draw, I want the quantum surveyor to go out the fifth of every month, regardless of what's going on, because you're going to need that funds uh, and that cycle coming through. It's planned for advance where historically people are waiting one, two, three, four months before they get a draw and, uh, and it'd be okay, but not anymore. That's uh, unless you have the cash flow to float it on your own. Definitely. Um, I feel like I was going to head on to another point right after that. Uh, draws the quantity surveyors, right? So the appraiser's uh, progress report doesn't actually allow for them to, and this is an appraisal guideline issue. Um, the, the appraisal institute does not include materials in their progress reports, whereas mm. the construction lien act does account for delivery of materials. So you, there's a slight timing mismatch between right. when materials are delivered and when they're affixed to the dwelling. And until they're actually affixed to the dwelling, then the appraiser cannot give you credit for them. So let's imagine that uh, your flooring tiles are in a big pile and boxes out in the garage mm -hmm. that they haven't been installed yet. Well, right. the appraiser cannot give you any percentage completion for flooring materials for those uninstalled tiles, but your contractor can demand payment for them. So there is a mismatch there. Absolutely. And you know, for small amounts, it's okay. But if, you know, if you're doing a lot of tiling or you have that $100,000 kitchen sitting in boxes, um, that can add up pretty substantially. Definitely. Definitely. It's something to be aware of. Um, quantity surveyors, I think, have different guidelines that they can follow. So in uh, larger commercial builds, uh, smaller subdivisions or multifamily dwellings, um, the commercial construction lenders will require people to use a quantity surveyor. Um, it may not hurt if you're doing a significant residential project to just, you know, ask a quantity surveyor if, uh, if they can quote for you on this, because I believe that they can unlock the materials monies, whereas the appraiser mm -hmm. at this time does not have the ability to do so under their guidelines. Right. Now, especially, you know, I was working on a custom home mortgage uh, just recently, and the gentleman's windows were, I think, $190,000 um, just to order the windows before install. So he had to put a $100,000 deposit down um, to order the windows. And that's, you know, that's a project cost that's in there. But an appraiser, like you said, wouldn't be able to even account for that money being spent. That's right. That's right. Um, there is some, uh, some new, new rules regarding bonding, surety bonding or completion bonding. Yeah. Um, and this comes into if you were if you were hiring someone who's um, engaging in maybe some road work or installing some uh, services, um, either municipal services or otherwise. Um, the municipality may have requirements for them to complete that work and, right. and those commercial contractors may be asked or may be required by your lender to provide a surety bond that they will be completing that work. Mm -hmm. yeah. uh, and there are some allowances in the lien act and in, in the revised lien act for surety bonding. Um, okay. Another thing is that actions can be combined. So if, if I'm the homeowner or the property owner and I have a dispute with my general and my general has a dispute with someone else, then their dispute can be combined with my dispute because it's still, it's ultimately the same money that's not being unlocked. Right. So the, the party, so, so it's not, the, the adjudication isn't just between homeowner and general, the adjudication can also be between general and sub or sub and tradesperson uh -huh. or tradesperson and supplier, right? So right. any party in this chain of money can request adjudication and then also request that the actions be combined. Right. Well, I always found it when I was building houses that, you know, it, it drove me crazy that, and we almost got caught once, was we had a supplier that in the middle of our paying the supplier and then paying their subs, um, went out of business. Oh, no. And, uh, yeah. So he didn't pay his sub. Uh, now, luckily we had enough, you know, it was only a small check that payment. And so we were only out a little bit of money and we said, great, we're going to pay the sub directly and then cut out that, that person. They acknowledged it and accepted it luckily. Um, but yeah, it could have caused a big delay in the project where they could have, the sub could have leaned the project. And even though we had a contract with, 
with the first sub, you know, the second sub could have leaned it and made a mess, um, but luckily we avoided it. But I think it sounds like this process is going to help those kind of situations immensely. I think so. And, um, you know, as, as someone who, you know, may be adjudicating, you know, one of these mm -hmm. days when I complete my, uh, my forms, um, I, I would have some comments, you know, in, in a perfect world, uh, as a lender or as a broker or as a homeowner, um, mm -hmm. you know, I know the person with whom I'm doing business is, is who they say they are. Um, right. Just like any other court action or collection activity, if you don't identify them properly, if you don't have their accurate legal name or their accurate company name, um, you can't, you can't process the adjudication requests. So, you know, prove that they are who they say they are, get business cards, you know, maybe verify that they're HST registrants and you know, use whatever resources you have, or maybe consult your lawyer just to verify that this person is legitimately who they have identified themselves as, or that company is who they've identified themselves as. And that goes both ways. So right. that's the homeowner as well as the, the contractors and the subs. Um, I, I have read uh, some, some court results where um, uh, the spouse who's not on title, the contract, but uh -huh. the US on title did not. And so it went actually, I think, up to Superior Court. I have to check to uh -huh. determine if there was unjust enrichment. So the, the lien couldn't proceed because the, the party that's on title did not consent to the contract, but ultimately as a spouse, they received unjust enrichment from the performance of the contract. So the contractor did eventually get paid, but it was a nuance, right? And that's right. a nuance that would have fallen outside of adjudication. Right. Yeah. And how would the contractor know, right, if this person was untitled or not? Well, like that's, a pretty that's where, you know, again, take that extra time. And, you know, when you're preparing your contract or your quote to identify who actually owns that property and right. make sure that the people with whom you're negotiating are the legal owners. Uh, there was there was another case where uh, it was a commercial project and this would fall under adjudication as well. The owner of, let's just say it was like a, a retail tire business um, was one company that was owned by a person. Yeah. but the property was rented to a holding company that they also owned and it was owned by the same person but because yeah. the work was performed for the tenant company the owner company ended up not being liable for that construction which doesn't seem fair but that's mm -hmm. where the courts are reading the contracts and determining that the, the lien was invalid because it wasn't registered to the correct entity so yeah. it, it behooves all parties in this transaction to make sure that they're dealing with someone that they can legally identify Right. You know, do your due diligence. Be oh, thorough. oh, I promise I'm fun at parties, really. Um, <laughs> you are, but you and I geek out on these things and it's awesome. I, um, I, I love it. And I don't think enough people really, you know, we got so good at our businesses. You know, if you're that Tyler or that Kramer or that whoever, in my case, you know, the mortgage broker and we work on, on the job, sometimes we don't step back and look. It's like, okay, what are the big picture that we need to pay attention to? And how do we really help our customers and our referral centers and our partners? Um, and that's why I'm glad we're having you on today going through this. And, and I hope both on the consumer side and the contractor side, people learn and realize that, hey, that contract is important. If you, if that homeowner or that person you're engaging for work doesn't pay you, if your contract's not detailed, you might not get paid. Right. Um, you know, one final nuance on that point, um, you know, there's new legislation for corporations that are registered in the province of Ontario, mm -hmm. this isn't for federal corporations, but you know this, um, as of, I think, last, January, all Ontario corporations were required to file a schedule of beneficial ownership of properties. Right. So if they're not, and they're not filing their annual information returns, their T2s, uh, because the in, in Ontario, the T2 and the annual information return go together, which is different than a federal corp, then um, they, they, not, may, they may not 
retain the right to own the property. And you know, uh, someone who's leaning a property for a corporation that hasn't filed its returns might find itself contending with the province for ownership of that property if it ever comes to court for the lien matter. Yeah, maybe you could talk a little about, um, you know, what is beneficial ownership? Because a lot of people don't understand what, what that really means. And it's, uh, there's been a lot of unique situations where people are, are owning a property with, in a beneficial way that, um, yeah, if you could get into that, I'd love Wow, it. I feel like there are so many permutations of that question. Um, you know, the, the beneficial owner of a property is the person who, you know, if it's owned by a corporation is ultimately the person or persons who own that corporation. So they've mm -hmm. got that beneficial ownership. Um, but you can also own a property in trust for someone else. Yeah. And uh, you can actually have a, a trust or a family trust registered on title, in which point the beneficiaries of the trust are the beneficial owners of the property. Um, so it's basically anyone you know, who, who, to whom ownership ultimately devolves or decision-making around the property or the ownership of same or ability to encumber is, is the beneficial owner. Right, absolutely. And, and I've sure seen- There are other ways to define that, but as you said earlier, you know, I am not a lawyer or an accountant either. No. No, it's true. You know, I've seen on, on the on the real world side, you know, quite often if, you know, two people, two friends will buy a property together, one person will end up putting in his name or her name, and then the other person's not on title and they say, oh, I own half the property. Well, do you? Are you a beneficial owner? Um, yeah. Like so that, legalities around that, that comes down. So, you know, you'll see joint venture agreements, and I think a lot of... Um, real estate investment strategies involve, you know, raising capital from joint venture partners where the, right. the joint venture partners may have, may have put money into the project, but did not receive the benefit of being named on title as a beneficial owner. And they may not have received uh, a mortgage or, or even a promissory note registered on title in exchange. So that tradesperson will not have any visibility on those joint venture partners in situations like that, because that right. promissory note does not exist as a title instrument. Yeah. So you could consider, uh, you know, registering than as a note on title as long as it doesn't constitute a breach of any financing or mortgages absolutely yeah so the important thing for everybody that's listening on here is if you are an investor in one of those situations where you're doing joint ventures or the person doing the joint ventures and getting investor money really get a good lawyer make sure you talk to your lawyer thoroughly and your accountant about all the implications um, a lot of people just do it quickly and they get so excited about buying a property and they don't actually um, really dive deep into that agreement and spend the money you know, over and over again. I've told all my investors in the years, that document that you're going to spend, you're probably going to have to spend it once, maybe twice. Get it done professionally. Um, it will save your bacon over and over again. Yeah, and that's true for your construction contracts as well. If you're you know, considering a, a renovation or an improvement, um, it does not hurt to have your lawyer checking that contract over and uh, it, it could save money and time later to have the lawyer's eyes on that contract especially with all the changes that have been taking place in 2018 and 2019. For sure. I'm surprised the number of times where, you know, I hire a contractor and I'm like, okay, great. Send me your liability insurance and we'd go check with WSIB and they're not registered. I'm like, what? How can you be a contractor and not be registered? I'm going to have the well, basic. hiring subs, right? So um, another one of my, my requests, you know, as a, as a future adjudicator, hopefully, mm -hmm. uh, would be to identify the subs or to require the identification of the subs in your contract. Because if something happens, and I'll, I'll speak to an actual example of this in a few minutes, if something happens and that sub is on your property, but you're not aware of that subcontractor's existence and, and they end up making a claim against you for, for uh, harm or damages, right. that, that could be detrimental, especially if, you know, you're 
completely unaware of that person's existence. If you're dealing with, you know, Joe's contracting and he hires Mike's subcontracting, but you're unaware of that hire taking place, uh, you know, you don't want to stop Joe's contracting from, you know, acting appropriately and doing his business. But at the same time, you're now doing business with a third party company of which you're unaware and uh, request, uh, I would suggest that in your formation of your construction contracts that you request subcontractor approval or at least identification. I agree 100%, you know, and again, it comes back to just like you said, get the right contracts and take the time, you know, to, to spend that hour to send it to a lawyer, your accountant. There's lots of people you can search just online. Your real estate lawyer that you bought with is also not a bad, if it's, if it's a homeowner, you might not have another lawyer, but you know, just reach out to your, the lawyer that did that work for you in the first place. Yeah. And, and if they're not, uh, if they're not experts on the lien act, then they would certainly be able to refer you to someone who can assist. Uh, I was going to give you an example of uh, a lady who hired an electrician uh, mm -hmm. who was registered with the ESA, who ended up hiring subcontractors who weren't. And she ended up requiring an ESA inspection of the electrical work, and it was not done to standards. But wow. because she had no subcontractor knowledge or approval, he didn't get her consent before hiring subcontractors. She couldn't bring them back in. Right. And it turned out that, you know, she had a dog in the house. They entered her home to collect tools, but yeah. didn't tell her that they were coming and she hadn't put the dog like into the back room. And now they're in a dispute over a dog bite that may or may not have occurred. And uh, the, the bylaw officers say that it didn't, but we're still in a dispute now. Wow. Not only just over the electrical work, but also over the dog. Oh my God. That's amazing. That's yeah. <laughs> we could talk, talk about that for hours. So circling back around to your lending side, um, with this construction lien act, more due diligence, making sure we're getting paid, doing draws regularly. Yes. Um, what are the things you think might um, lenders really need to pay attention to on this? Mm, well, um, I or think many lenders already do a very good job at requiring complete contracts and estimates upfront. Yeah. I think that we're seeing fewer lenders these days that are going without contracts mm -hmm. upfront from uh, suppliers, subcontractors, and tradespeople. And I think that mortgage brokers have uh, been been great at trying to professionalize the process and, and train homeowners into what to expect. So I think if the lenders continue on that process, it will support the Construction Lien Act. Um, one of the things that I think lenders can get better at is determining when they're actually in default. Uh, very often lenders will stipulate that the minute a lien is registered or they've received notice of registration of a lien, um, they put the mortgage into the default category. And I think that um, if you're going to lend for construction, you have to understand that everyone in the chain is going to protect their rights. Uh, yeah. That's not just the party that you have your mortgage contract with, that's everyone else as well. So trying to, um, you know, work with that uh, instead of cons considering it to be a default file, I think would be a timely and relevant thing to consider if you're lending. Yeah, that's, that's a really good example. And he says that, mm -hmm. and I've seen that happen where the, the sub, uh, you know, a trade, a small, small builder that I know of um, paid his sub and I'm just going to pretend, let's say it's the window, the window sub. And then that guy's, you know, hired Joe sub company B and he didn't pay in full his, his the junior company or the sub, and they registered a lien. The, the builder did his job, he actually paid paid the invoice, but the lender was threatening to put him in default, and that's obviously a big, you know, a big mess. But uh, that's a really good example, and he said, you know, like you said, just because there's a lien doesn't mean the project is in default. Well, yeah, sometimes it is. So lenders will always protect their interest first, um, yeah. but uh, yeah, 
that that would I think be useful, especially during this you know, kind of interim period where lenders and, and and homeowners and contractors are all getting used to this new uh, new lien act. Absolutely, and you know, and, and you and I seen many times where a project does go into a fall that three quarters or halfway through, and then because of the length of time it takes, um, the project actually you know the building deteriorates, it's not closed up, it's not at a stable point where you can leave it. Um, and then a lot of times I've seen the lenders actually become in a worse position. Although they're protecting their rights, it was kind of like, you know, you're spiting your, cutting off your nose to spite your face. Definitely. And absolutely 100%. I've seen that uh, over many years. I, you know, foundations left open over the winter with, you know, freezing and thawing and just the complete destruction of the, the dwelling. And, oh, yeah. yeah. It's, it's sad. It's, it's very sad, for sure. Yeah, well, if you're not, you know, lenders are typically in the business of lending money. They're, they're not builders. They don't necessarily understand the nuances of what's happening, the timing. And, um, you know, that's why it's key for the brokers, the borrowers, the builders, uh, all the work with really experienced construction lenders and have everybody in your team that knows what they're doing. Um, sometimes it's not, you know, it's, it, sometimes it is the cheapest rate and sometimes it's not. But successful projects are what's really what it's all about. And uh, and when things go bad, that's that's the key is when there's when you have a challenge, when you had you know, a window in transit break, you know, you don't want your lender saying, oh, too bad, it's not in, you can't get any draw. Um, you want someone that's going to be able to work with you. Yeah, one of the things that we say in our business is, uh, if it's too good to be true, it's money laundering. Um, <laughs> so if, if you're working with a lender and, uh, and they're experienced and professional and they're asking you all these questions, it means that they're going to be with you through the process. If you have somebody who's not asking you those questions, um, you know, definitely, you know, take a look, um, take, a, take a close look at that entity. Absolutely. That's great. Um, well, listen, I really thanks going through the detail. Thank you for going through the detail on the adjudication and then some of the new construction lien act. Um, I think I would really love to have you on a future show where we're doing a deep dive into you know, how to open up a MIC and, and what are some of the challenges and some good compliance procedures. And, and not that we're going to educate people, you know, in 30 minutes to, to do a MIC, but it's a question that a lot of finance professionals and brokers have. And, um, and if, yeah, if you're interested in doing that, that would be a, a good option. What I'd like to do is come back once we actually see some of the uh, adjudication uh, precedent being set, once we start oh, seeing sure. the decisions coming out and uh, letting, you know, letting you know what the update actually looks like in the... In, Absolutely. In the so have you launched your... Um, I know you were mentioning before about doing a blog and a website where you're going to be putting a lot of this information up. Uh, adjudicator-related information, no. So there, there's, there's an interesting stipulation where you know adjudicators cannot market adjudication. <laughs> so um, you know it's it's almost like uh, I'm, we're going to have to make the call about being able to talk about adjudication or being able to adjudicate. And right. I haven't quite come to that point yet. But definitely uh, regarding the mortgage investment space, 100%. So I'll share that link with you once it's ready to go. Okay, perfect. Yeah, so share that with us. We'll um, I'm in the show notes to make sure that those are included in there. And uh, and I really appreciate you being on the show, Anissa. Uh, it was really awesome.